As for the rest of us, I'd like to welcome you to the first Sunday of Advent. It's a great time. It is the Advent season. And uh, it's also the Sunday that we move ahead in our current series. Uh, This series, we've presented in in a bunch of questions that really try to answer things that the culture is saying about God, about those who follow God. And uh, it's really today the question we're trying to answer is, is the Bible anti-science? It's one of the accusations made out there. And it's particularly fitting that we should talk about this issue today because today, the first week in the Advent season, because the four themes that outline the meaning of Advent are among the truths that are most actively attacked in our culture, especially this one, God is anti-science. So, uh, for example, the first Sunday, now Today is the first Sunday in Advent. The first Sunday in Advent is traditionally set aside as a time when we explore the hope found in God's promises. And the fact that those promises are satisfied and fulfilled in the coming of Messiah. The four major themes of Advent are traditionally uh, hope or promise. Hope is always built on a promise. Preparation, or prophecy, and joy, which is dependent on and meshed with peace. And lastly, love, or adoration, which we can't I mean, we often think of love as love for one another, but in this case, it's love for God, adoration of his son. So I want to read from you a passage that we've already looked at a little bit this morning, Um, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. So if uh, if you have your Bible available and ready, Uh, Isaiah chapter 9, 1 through 11. I'll give you a moment to turn there as I turn there. This, here we go. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. It was hiding there in the middle of a chart. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times. He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, 
The light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Wow. This passage of scripture outlines the hope bound up in the Advent season. Hope for the removal of gloom. Who doesn't need that? Hope for the restoration of a glorious and meaningful existence. Who doesn't need that? Hope of the end of anguish. I want that. Hope that God's provision is not limited to one people only, but extends to all nations and all peoples. Doesn't this world need something to unite it? Hope that light will dispel darkness. Plenty of darkness today to go around, isn't there? Hope that joy will be multiplied. I want more joy, do you? Hope that hunger will be no more and all needs will be satisfied. Hope that oppression will cease. Hope that peace, justice, and righteousness will overcome violence, the rule of might, and the triumph of evil. Who doesn't need that to happen? And hope is built on the promise of a person who will finally bring about the fulfillment of God's original design and God's intention when he first created the world. Advent is part of the story of God keeping his promise of renovation to a world that is devastated and decaying because of sin. So as we celebrate God's goodness and faithfulness, the world stands opposed to the very idea that God even exists. Much less the things that we celebrate can possibly come about. The world doesn't believe it, and yet our hope 
is based on these things. The world doesn't believe that any of that can come from God. So we need to pray. And let's do that. Father, as we move ahead this morning and explore the question of whether the Bible is anti-science, that seems like such a worldly pursuit in view of the things that you have already done and call us to celebrate every year. I pray your anointing on me and I pray your Holy Spirit teach us as we look at these things and try to gain from them an understanding of how we fit into the picture of you keeping your promise and restoring what is broken and tainted by death. We call on you to do these things in the name of your son and for the sake of the kingdom that you are building in the lives of men, women, and children everywhere. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, the Savior of the world, Messiah, the child of Advent. Amen. We've been exploring cultural mantras. That's what Pastor Alex calls them. He said that they are repeatable phrases that are sacred to the culture and feel true. He said it slightly different. I reworded it, but all those things are in there. They are phrases that are, think of them as sound bites. The cultural mantras are sound bites that the culture uses because they communicate something that the culture firmly believes and feels are true. You know exactly what those mantras are. They are lies that people tell about God in order to minimize him. I've got to stop there and let you know that a lot of people who are doing that don't understand that that's what they're doing. So there's room there for us to extend mercy, extend grace. The things they say don't necessarily have to be true. It is enough that to them, those things feel true. The things they say are also not sacred in the traditional sense of being set apart for the worship of a deity. Instead, these things are sacred to them only in the sense that they are highly valued and considered to be important. If you were to look in the dictionary, you would see that first thing dedicated to the worship of a deity as the first definition of sacred. And you would see that last thing just valued as being highly important. That is the last definition. 
Somehow the world has taken what was once the lowest meaning of a phrase and elevated it to the primary meaning. And they have taken the primary meaning and lowered it to the point that it's not even possible in their mind to dedicate to a deity. And that's exactly where our culture stands right now. They value certain ideas as long as they feel true. Our idea, or one idea in our culture uh, that our culture has abandoned is the idea of God. Our culture is just flat out abandoning the idea that God can even exist. God no longer feels true to our culture. I'm not going to dwell on our responsibility. Our culture has abandoned truth in favor of feelings, and they've abandoned God in favor of ideas. There's no longer truth. There's just what feels true. There's no longer God. There's just ideas that we as humans have. And as a result, some of the cultural mantras of our day are lies about God that feel true. For example, God is responsible for slavery. Not true, but to many it feels true. Another example, God is responsible for genocide. Not true, but Many are convinced because it feels to them to be true. Another one, God is anti-science. If the pattern holds, not true, but it feels to many as though it is true. Over the past two weeks, uh, we have explored the errors in those first two statements about slavery and genocide. Today, we get to explore whether God is anti-science. And I have to tell you that I had a difficult time trying to figure out how to approach this subject. Because the more I thought about it, the more technical it became. I talked to a few of you throughout the week, some very briefly, about how I was going to approach the technical aspect. And I got to let you know, that I was completely wrong. I'm not going to talk about any technicalities about science. So you can all breathe a sigh of relief because we're not going to go into details. Um, instead, these statements, these cultural mantras, these lies being told about God, that I'm just going to recognize them for what they are. They are not the real issues. They are straw men. They're like scarecrows standing out in the field. Uh, they are made to look real, but all they end up doing is exactly what those who set them up intend for them to do, and that is distract us from the real issue. The validity of the Bible is not the real issue. So we, and especially me this morning, I don't want to spend a lot of time beating up scarecrows out in the field. I want to get down to the real issues. 
So rather than, rather than go after their, their straw men and, and spend time doing exactly what they want me to do, ignoring God and dealing with their issues, um, while all the time they undermine our faith by attacking the foundations of our faith, instead of doing that, I'm going to give you a brief picture of how God views science and get down to the real issues after that. Second, I'm going to get down, like I said, to those real issues. So let me start by saying this. I'll just spend a few minutes destroying these straw men and then we'll move, move on, okay? God is not anti-science. God is pro-truth. It's not that God denies science. God is all about truth. See, in Genesis 1, 14 through 16, I'm going to read that to you. Genesis 1, 14 through 16. And I'm going to spend a little bit of time in Genesis 1 and 2, so if you want to open your Bibles here, you can do that. Genesis 1, 14 through 16. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs, for seasons, and for days and years and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heaven to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God gave them in the expanse, or placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. So at the very beginning, right there in Genesis chapter 1, God made things for us to study and to understand. He said, let them mark the days, the months, the years. And so right at the very beginning, one of the very first thing God does is invent astronomy. Now, astronomy is a science. God invented it. And he created all the things that would take our energy as we scientifically explore them. Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That's an interesting thing right there at the very beginning God created animals and told us to figure out how to care for them God invented biology ecology and animal husbandry Genesis 2 verse 15 then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it when he told Adam to cultivate the garden, God invented horticulture. Those are just three examples of God supporting science. God is not anti-science. God is 
pro-truth. And here's another straw man that I'm not going to spend a lot of time dismantling, but I must open your eyes to these realities. The enemy will say things like, well, what about evolution? Didn't those things just contradict evolution? Genesis teaches creationism, not science. Well, okay, I can't go into all the details this morning or the enemy will win the day, and that will not happen. I can tell you this much. The Bible is not a scientific text. It is not an astronomical textbook. The Bible is not a book on biology, chemistry, astronomy, philosophy, religion, mythology, psychology, nor is it a treatise on anthropology. But it talks about all those things. To treat the Bible like something it is not is disingenuous. It is a lie used to set up straw men like the Bible is anti-science. The Bible is not anti-science. The Bible is pro-truth. Okay, enough messing with the straw men. Let's get down to what I think is the real issue here. Romans 1. Romans 1, verses 18 through 20, because that way I'll leave Pastor Alex something to talk about next week. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, See, the Bible's pro-truth. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. That is right. See, God intended that we should come to know him by studying what he has made. That is science. God loves science. He gives us science so that we could come to understand and know him better. As we come to understand him more perfectly... We abandon our misconceptions and move into better understanding. Notice the process there. We abandon our misconceptions. That means we came to some conclusions, we learned more, figured out we were wrong, and so we changed our mind in order to better understand God as he revealed himself. As we come to understand him more perfectly, we abandon our misconceptions and move into better understanding. That is the scientific method. That is actually the basis of all scientific knowledge. We observe things, we attempt to explain them, and then we test our explanations. When we learn that our explanations are incorrect or even just not complete, we edit our explanation and devise more tests. We are always seeking to know God who is eternal and past finding out. God intends us to be engaged in science. 
When we come to a place in which we exclude some possibilities just because they don't sound true to us, then we move beyond the realm of science. Chew on that one for a minute. When we come to a place where we exclude some ideas just because they don't sound true to us, that's when we leave the realm of science. Let me restate that in a way that might make a little more sense. If we begin our exploration of the universe with this statement, God cannot exist, we have immediately left the realm of science. Science will always keep every possibility open until it is disproven. And that has not been done about God. It has simply been assumed, which is a faith position, not a scientific position. All right. What I actually just did was I fought off another straw man. So this time I'm really going to leave that effort. And I'm going to move on to the real point, which is meta-narratives. Meta-narratives. Several weeks ago, Pastor Alex explored the power of meta-narratives, and it is time for us to abandon that word. Amen, right? I got at least one out there. So instead of meta-narrative, what I'm going to talk about are the stories that explain everything. That's what a meta-narrative is, the stories that explain everything. So let's talk about those stories. The Bible is one of those. Actually, the Bible has many stories, all woven into one long story that explains everything. Now, I want you to understand that it's when we rightly understand those stories and how they relate to one another, that's how we understand the truth. The Bible is true in and of itself. It's true whether we understand it or not. But we only come to understand truth as we come to rightly understand what God has revealed in his word. And ultimately, what he has revealed in nature. Because remember the Romans passage? He made things to reveal who he is. And also, as we come to rightly understand, the person of Jesus Christ, who, according to Colossians, is the exact representation of his being. When you build a house, especially if you build a house with a basement, the majority of time and money is spent on the foundation. You don't see it. It's just down there. And that's what I've been doing. So now let's take the things that I've been talking about and build something on them. Let's build an edifice, a house. If, 
If the Bible is a set of stories that explain everything, some of the first and most important points it makes are these. God made everything good. Man messed it up when he fell from God's intended plan. Both God and man are trying to set it right. But they're going about it in two different ways. The Bible actually talks about that. Both God and God created everything good. Man messed it up when he fell from God's purpose, and God and man are both trying to set it right, but they're going about it in two different ways. This is what we call the fall, the fact that man left God's intended purpose. That's the fall. And then the fact that God's going about setting it right, that is the promise of redemption. We have a story that tells us about why things are broken and how God's going about fixing them or at least dealing with it. People have spent untold hours, by the way, trying to unravel the meaning of the fall. There are books upon books written about what original sin is, how it came about, where it started, what it did. I've always understood that the best way to understand what's in the Bible is to allow the Bible to comment on itself. I only know of one place in Scripture where Bible comments on the meaning of the fall. So I'm going to go to it and let it tell us what the fall is all about. It's located in the Old Testament in the book of Ecclesiastes, which everybody's glad we don't preach from a lot. But in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, Solomon is talking about, he's, he's on a quest to understand things. And he is seeking in chapter 7 to understand the fact that no one is righteous. He's exploring the effects of the fall, and he comes to this conclusion. In Ecclesiastes 7, verse 29, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, comes to this conclusion, Behold, I have found only this, God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. That's it. That's Scripture's comment on the fall, what it is, the results of it. God made man upright, but man sought out many devices. A better way to say that is God had a plan. Man had his own plans. God made all things good, including people. People messed up. People rejected God's evaluation and set about doing things his own way, and all the trouble in the world is the result. Both God and man are trying to fix it. Right? Some of our cultural mantras are intended to shut God out of the process and allow man to fix it. 
Both God and man are trying to fix it. God is doing it by establishing all of those Advent things that I was talking about at the very beginning. He wants to finally establish peace, justice, and righteousness. And through those things, when God ushers them in ultimately, he will satisfy all those other things for which we hope. The removal of gloom. The restoration of our original glory. The restoration of meaning for existence. The end of anguish. The establishment of God's provision to all nations and peoples. Darkness replaced with light. Multiplied joy. Hunger ended. The satisfying of all need. The end of oppression. The end of the rule of violence and might. And the end of the triumph of evil. Finally, bringing about the fulfillment of God's original design and intention. That's what God is setting about doing God's way. And Advent is part of him keeping the promise to accomplish that. That passage in Isaiah, amazing, because it said, God is seeing to it that this will happen. It is the zeal of the God. Uh, it is the zeal of God that will accomplish it. God is zealous for all of these things to come about. It's what he wants. And he has sent he has spent all of human history trying to get there while we stand opposed to him. Nonetheless, he will accomplish what he set out to achieve. Man is also trying to undo the effects of the fall and to set things right, but man is still rejecting God's evaluation of the situation and God's plan. Man is eliminating truth and God and devising his own understanding and plans for restoration. God created man upright, but he's seeking out many devices, his own, devising his own plans. By continuing to pursue his own ways man is reinforcing and expanding the problems rather than setting things right and it's the straw men of the cultural mantras that are hoping to keep us focused in the wrong direction we have to get back to the main point 
So here's my conclusion about all of these things. It comes down to this. The statement, God is anti-science, is a straw man. It's a way for the enemy of our souls to distract us from the real issues. And here's the real issue. Romans 1, 16 and 17. This is the real issue. This is God's plan for undoing the results of the fall. Romans 1, 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. But, the real wording is this. Those who are justified by faith, those who are made righteous by faith shall live. The passage tells us that the gospel is God's plan for reversing the results of the fall. It is the linchpin. More than that, the gospel is God's power for doing those things. So what? That's a really big so what. We've been talking about sharing tables. We've been talking about sharing tables outside of our own fellowship with the people in our community, the people in our lives that we come into contact with on a a regular basis, people who have different perspectives from us about undoing the work of the fall. Oftentimes, we have to focus really narrowly and focus on whatever it is that the person we're talking to is dealing with. So if they've got a problem in their life, if we've got a problem in our life, if human beings have problems, it's because of the effects of the fall. It's part of the effects of the fall, and the way to undo it is to bring the power of God into the situation through the gospel. And to invite that person into a faith relationship with the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we're doing this series. We're walking through this series in order to strip those cultural mantras of their power. We need to recognize them for what they are and get down to the real issue. 
Second thing we're trying to do with this series is give you tools to use so that you can give biblical responses when people spout the cultural mantras. The third thing that we're trying to do in this series is to increase your trust in God and your confidence in his word so that you can surrender to the truth, carry the gospel out, and call others in. How can you simply communicate the gospel to the people in your life, to the people who you invite to your table? I've tried to make the statements in this message simple. Those truths communicate many parts of the gospel. And they can affect the lives of people around you the people whose lives you interact with. If you can remember any of the little bits and pieces about the effects of the fall and the promise of redemption from Isaiah chapter 9, you can look there anytime and see them. If you can remember the bits about the effects of the fall and the promise of redemption, the meaning of the Advent season, then you can communicate hope to those around you. Simply letting them know God has a different plan than what you might have heard and explain it to them. When you do that, you destroy the power of cultural mantras. You destroy them because people know truth when the Holy Spirit tells it to them. See, when you stop attacking the straw men of the culture and you address the heartfelt needs of the people around you and you communicate hope, then you start changing lives. This message is a call for you to engage more deeply and more simply in the presentation of the gospel. To get down to the heartfelt needs and God's simple answer of restoration through faith in God's plan. That is the advent of Jesus Christ the Messiah. Amen. <clears throat> I'm going to pray for us, and while I am, worship team's going to come back up. Father, um, it can sound so simple, and it can be so hard, because the enemy of our souls is not willing to give up the fight nor is he willing to give up the ground that he's made in the lives of the people around us. He will intimidate us. He will attempt to embarrass us. 
He will resist us. He will brand us as liars. He will accuse us. He will cause us to doubt our own selves. My prayer for us is remind us of what you said.